Welcome to Me, Myself, and Millie. This is part two of the conversation of recurrent pregnancy loss. Um, We are doing two episodes, and this is the second one in the series. And with us to talk about this subject is naturopathic physician in Tucson, Arizona, Dr. Katie Rose. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Katie. Rose. Thank you so much for having me, Millie. I love, I love your name. Like, I, I thank you. I do too. I have to include both <laughs> names. I love it. It's so funny you say that because I still have friends from like grade school who just can only call me Katie Rose. <laughs> oh my gosh! Do some people just call you Dr. Katie? Yeah, some people do. Okay, yeah. but it's really Dr. Katie Rose. It, that's that's what feels best to me. Oh, <laughs> I love it. Okay. Well, let's start with how you became someone who specializes in fertility, hormones, and thyroid health. You are the first naturopathic physician to be on the show. Um, so I'd love to just understand a little bit more about that world and how you tackle things differently. Awesome. Well, I'm so honored to be here. Thank you for asking me. Um, So I guess my personal health journey was really um, impactful in me making the decision to pursue naturopathic medicine. I always had known I wanted to be a physician. And um, while I was in my undergrad pre-med program, I started getting sick a lot. Without my doctor's office, all the time. It was the running joke of like, you should have a parking spot. And I was like, that's not freaking funny. I'm 21. <laughs> and there came a point that they just were like, we don't really have any other solutions for you. And her nurse practitioner, who was just amazing, I don't know where I would be without her, pulled me aside and was like, you know what? You have to go see a naturopath. And I was like, I don't know what that is. Can you expand? And she was like, Well, it's basically, it's still a doctor, but they look at things more holistically. And all of our patients who see one are healthier. And I was like, Oh, that's intriguing and kind of disturbing. That's so interesting. And and just um, if it's okay to ask, what kind of sick was happening? Like what kind of sickness sickness was reoccurring? So the, the first problem is I had a sinus infection and then I got the flu and then I had walking pneumonia. And then every like six weeks for about a year and a half, I had a urinary tract infection and it was just miserable. I mean, I look back at my life at that point. I was like, oh my gosh, I was like a completely different person. Like, how was I surviving? And it was just one after the next. It was like you never had a break. Never. So it was was just really rough. So eventually I did go see this naturopath that she had recommended, and it was amazing. And it was the first time in that I could ever remember seeing a doctor who was like, how do you sleep? What do you eat? What is your stress level like? How are you doing emotionally versus like, oh, well, you're in pre-med. Of course you're stressed and don't sleep. Ha, 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 ha. And I was like, no, we're actually going to get to some solutions here and understand that like how I was burning the candle at both ends was totally wrecking my immune system. And because I'd been on so many antibiotics, my gut was just wrecked and I needed a lot of support to repair, um, you know, the gut health picture and the microbiome. And it's so eventually I got better and it really influenced my choice in pursuing naturopathic medicine instead of Western medicine. Wow. As a career. 
Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was a lot to go through as a young person, but I, I think I had to go through that Mm -hmm. to get to where I am now. And it really showed you a massive transformation. Truly. Massive. Yeah. I mean, not only did I see like, oh, wow, this lifestyle stuff really is significant. It also forced me to take responsibility Mm. for my health and myself and say like, oh, yeah, well, if I'm going to choose to pull an all-nighter to study, like I'm going to pay for that somewhere down the line, even if I feel fine tomorrow. Mm. That makes so much sense. So it was a really incredible experience. Yeah. And how did you find yourself specializing in fertility? So some of that was also the personal experience of um, coming off of birth control while I was in medical school and not getting a period for six months. And I went back to see my gynecologist, who I really loved, and was like, what's going on here? And she's like, nah. You know, it's kind of normal when you come off the pill. I wouldn't worry about it. If you want to have a period every month, go back on the pill. And I was like, well, I want to know why. Like, why isn't this happening? And, you know, I'm 25 years old. I'd like to start a family when I graduate from school. If I'm not ovulating, how am I going to start a family? And she she was like, oh, you're stressing about this too much. You don't need to stress about this now. And I was like, well, like, do you know the statistics on infertility? Like, I mean, I might be a little bit of a hypochondriac, but <laughs> I, it, it was like, <laughs> it was my single greatest fear that I would not be able to become a mother. And I, you know, I was seeing it around me because I, even though I was in medical school, not actively pursuing getting pregnant, I had friends, uh, you know, from high school, from college who were starting to be diagnosed with infertility. And it was like, this is, this is crazy. These people are generally healthy. What's going on here? So it really piqued my interest. And I decided like, nope, I don't want to go back on the birth control. I want to figure out what is going on in my body and solve it so that whenever I do decide I want to start trying, hopefully I have just set a better foundation for that. So it really led me down the rabbit hole mm-hmm. of natural fertility solutions, acupuncture for fertility, homeopathy, like anything that there was to learn, I was like, I'm here for it. Oh my God. Well, I can't, I can't wait to get into that today. Um, That dovetails quite nicely into the topic, which is, you know, recurrent pregnancy loss. When someone comes to you with a history of miscarriages, what's the first thing you look at? That's such a hard question for me because there isn't just one thing as, as a naturopath, as someone who specializes in holistic fertility, it's, I'm looking at the whole picture and this whole person might've had recurrent pregnancy losses. They might've been told like, everything's normal. These things just happen. And maybe even their, you know, recurrent pregnancy loss testing has come back normal by all Western standards there is usually some pattern, some nutrient deficiency, some hormonal imbalance that we can find. Mm. And, and I, you know, it's, it's hard because we just, we struggle with explanations. We as humans, like we need explanations for these things, especially tragedy, especially when we want to know that it wasn't our fault. So anything that we can rule out that we can possibly rule out, we will dig into. And some of these, you know, some of the ways in which I approach things absolutely could use a little bit more 
um, published evidence for, <laughs> um, like toxicity, for example, but we're gaining some traction in you know the world of environmental medicine and how toxins might influence hormones and you know embryo quality. But that's, I guess, a really long-winded way of saying I I can never look at just one thing. Mm. It's this entire person's picture, you know, who they are sitting in front of me now, what their occupational exposures have been, mm. what their partner's exposures have been, because it's not just a, a female problem, like it can be related to sperm um, issues as well. So we, we can't just look at one system. So backtracking to the toxins, I did an episode on the chemical stuff, you know, chemical toxins that can affect your fertility. And um, I love what you said, like how we need a little bit more data about some of this stuff. Like what, what kind of, um, where do you base some of the, um, you know, the protocols on how, how do you move, move forward with um, some of these theories? Oh, that is that can be tricky because I I would prefer to have everything be 100% based off of evidence that we have this study that was really really well done. But the reality is, when you're studying pregnant people, you're very limited mm. um, in not only the, the number of people you can recruit, but like you can't be exposing pregnant people to toxins um, on purpose. So a lot of the studies that we have are animal model based. So we have a lot of rat studies, we have a lot of mouse studies. Um, and that can help us understand a little bit more about how we can extrapolate that to a human, but it's not perfect mm. by any means. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're limited in that. And that can be a struggle when we want answers and we want solutions. And so like, what is the intake for somebody with RPL? Are you like, going through the list of questions, kind of like what you did um, with your first visit with a naturopathic physician, you know, like you're, are, you know, are you asking them about their sleep and their, what they eat? Um, I'd love to know more about that. Yeah. So we definitely will ask about their sleep. I will ask about their energy. Energy production can be a big factor to consider when we're talking about egg quality and hormone health. And, you know, a lot of it can come down to mitochondrial function, which, you know, I think anyone who's been in this world, I hope is addressing and at the bare minimum, we're like CoQ10, let's throw CoQ10 at everyone for their mitochondria. But we want to find out like, well, do they have symptoms that correlate to that, like fatigue? Mm. Um, i I'm definitely asking about what their exposure history has been. So what kind of hobbies do they have? What line of work are they in? Um, Where did they grow up? You know, I had someone who grew up in an area in the Midwest that was like literally right next to these steel mills. Their river was so polluted. um, And I tested her lead levels. um, That shows more of like body storage. And they were just like off the charts. Like, well, I don't have concrete evidence that this is causing your miscarriages, but I certainly don't like it for overall health. And I, I would feel more comfortable if we did something about it. So that's just one example. Um, I'm asking about like very, very, very detailed period questions. <laughs> what does it look like when you bleed? Is, is it clotty? Is it dark? Is it mucusy? How long does it last? Is there pain? How long is your luteal phase? Some people don't 
they're not paying attention to this. They don't know what a luteal phase is. So there's a lot of education involved in these initial appointments as well. And I'm asking about gut health a lot too, because there's so much going on in our gut. You know, it's a, a strong seat of the immune system. We are absorbing nutrients. Hormones are being detoxified in the gut. Other toxins are being detoxified in the gut. So there's just so much going on that I will do a pretty in-depth history of like, what does your poop look like? Do you have bloating? Do you have reflux? Um, Have you been on a million rounds of antibiotics in your lifetime that can affect the microbiome? Do you have IBS? Like all of those can help inform like, what is, what are we going to be testing for and what systems might be most at play in this picture. And what kind of screening or blood work do you recommend patients to get when working with you? So if if it does meet the criteria for recurrent pregnancy loss, which I hope um, you know most doctors are aware that the criteria has changed rather recently, that we no longer have to say two or more, um, you know, we can start testing at you know two consecutive losses. And I, I do a complete thyroid panel, number one. So beyond TSH, I want to see what the free and total thyroid hormone levels are and if there's a presence of thyroid antibodies. Um, I will, depending on where, how, how close they are to their most recent loss, I may run a panel to rule out antiphospholipid syndrome. Um, depending on where they are in their cycle, I might test progesterone. And, you know, to get a better understanding of their luteal phase, if there could be a luteal phase defect related to progesterone production, Um, vitamin D levels are an important one to measure too. And then based on their other symptoms and their overall picture, there's usually a few other nutrients I will test. So iron studies, B12, and, um, and Beyond the blood work, we might do some other functional testing, like a stool analysis, like toxin panel exposure, uh, toxin exposure panels, and um, those are are the big ones. Sometimes I will do a Dutch test, the hormone metabolism test, but um, there are different situations that I might be using that in um, outside of RPL. You know, you're the first physician to ever mention stool analysis on my show. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and not like, you know, there's, I'm sure, a bevy of jokes that we could, you know, say with that. But I think it's really interesting. I can't tell you how many stool samples I bring for my dog on a yearly basis, right? So it just, like, why, <laughs> why aren't we asking? Like, why aren't we looking at that? Like, it seems very very um, clear that that could be, could reveal some, some answers. Yeah. I I feel pretty strongly about it. I don't run it for everyone, but if there's a history there that tells us like, you know, this person is chronically constipated, they have, you know, diarrhea, they've got bloating, they've been on a lot of antibiotics, they've had a long history of yeast infections. Like those might be some clues to us that we need to dig in um, deeper into the digestive system. We can also um, detect inflammation pretty well in the digestive um, testing process. So with stool analysis, you can look at calprotectin, you can look at glucuronidase, which has to do with our estrogen metabolism. Um, you can look at all of the 
the milieu of parasites and yeasts and bacteria that are potentially pathogenic. Because if someone has this subtle, just kind of smoldering infection, that's going to flare their immune system up like crazy, but it may not necessarily come up on blood work. So um, that, that's the type of stuff that like we're digging into the mysterious parts of RPO where, you know, they've probably already been to their gynecologist. Maybe they've started a workup with an RE, but they're not usually digging into those types of things. Mm. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Um, that's news to me. You're welcome. Well, let's talk about hormones and RPL, what kind of correlation do you see and how do you tackle something like that? So as far as hormones go, you know, the, the one of the biggest hormones that impacts the ability to retain a pregnancy is progesterone. So as we're taking our history and we're getting a better understanding of what someone's cycle looks like, I want to know, does their luteal phase last longer than 10 days? And some women might know this, they might have been tracking their ovulation or using a fertility awareness method. And some women just have not the slightest idea. And, you know, our sex education system just really fails us in so many ways on that front. So we want to look at progesterone because this is the hormone that's produced after ovulation. And it helps to maintain the uterine lining so that if you have an embryo trying to implant, it can do that in a really healthy way and then start to form the placenta, which will eventually take over progesterone production. That first trimester, this little structure in the ovary called the corpus luteum is responsible for making that progesterone. And it's really important that it's able to keep up with that. And it's important that the uterine lining is able to respond to it. So if we have either not enough progesterone production or the uterine lining cannot respond to the progesterone, that's when we can see earlier pregnancy losses and implantation failure happening more frequently. So that's why getting a history um, is really important, understanding when the pregnancy loss occurred, you know, if it was in the very early, early stages versus like week 10, 12. Um, more likely that that's a possibility. Um, I mean, I'm sure in part one, you're probably going through like, what are the main causes in terms of um, miscarriages at large, which we know are 50% genetic, but the next most common issue is hormonal. Mm. So if, if we're not looking at the hormones, then we're missing a big opportunity to support people with that. So mm. progesterone is our star there. We want to make sure the levels are you know, proving that ovulation has occurred and that they're staying high enough to support a pregnancy through the first trimester. And um, talk about thyroid health in its correlation to the hormones, especially with RPL. Yes. So thyroid, there's there's really two pieces of thyroid that are going to be important to look at. So number one is, are the levels high enough to support a pregnancy. So as soon as someone gets pregnant, their need for thyroid hormone is going to go up by 30 to 50%. So if their thyroid's already a little sluggish or if they're being treated for thyroid, but maybe it's not being watched super closely, that's another time when we're more likely to see early pregnancy loss is if 
their body just cannot keep up with the thyroid production. Their thyroid, you know, just kind of taps out. And the other factor that we need to look at is thyroid autoimmunity. So this is the condition most commonly known as Hashimoto's thyroid, so autoimmune hypothyroid. It's the most common reason for hypothyroid in women. But I would say in my experience, and I probably about 70% of my patient population has Hashimoto's, which has really been interesting to be a part of. Um, doctors are screening TSH, which comes from the pituitary and just communicates with the thyroid gland, but they're not necessarily screening the other hormones, the free circulating thyroid hormones or the antibodies. So if we don't know that the antibodies are there, then again, we're missing an opportunity to support someone. And we have been able, I say we as if I did this research, (laughs) researchers have been able to detect the thyroid antibodies in the placenta. So we believe that there is a higher risk of miscarriage when someone has had Hashimoto's, especially when it's just allowed to just run rampant. Mm. And just giving someone thyroid replacement hormone doesn't address why their immune system was so aggravated that it started attacking their thyroid in the first place mm. and making antibodies that can then deposit in other places. So we, de- we see deposits in the placenta. It's also been detected in the follicular fluid surrounding eggs. So we now know to be more aggressive in treating fertility for people who have Hashimoto's because there could be an egg quality issue as well. Oh, wow. Wow. That's interesting. What suggestion do you have for someone who is going through IVF with a reproductive endocrinologist and are having repeat miscarriages or failed transfers? Well, I I would hope that they, number one, feel emotionally supported, um, that they have been thoroughly told over and over again that this is not their fault um, and that they're having the right testing done. Um, so one of one of the first books that I recommend to people when I find out that they've had more than one pregnancy loss is Not Broken by Dr. Laura Shaheen. Um, I know that she's said like, she used a couple updates to it because it's a couple years old, <laughs> but it really is still at this time the most thorough, thoroughly researched um, book about recurrent pregnancy loss and the types of tests that need to be done. So I would hope that most REs are already doing that. Um, but if they're not, if they're just kind of brushing it off as like, well, you know, your risks are higher going through IVF, like that's not an excuse for not testing. So we need that thorough thyroid workup. We need the recurrent pregnancy loss panels that look at clotting factors and um, the anti-cardiolipin antibodies associated with the antiphospholipid syndrome. So there's proper testing that should be done. And if, if someone doesn't feel supported, if they've asked for tests and they're getting brushed off, or they've said, you know, we've, got, we've had four failed transfers, like, what should we change here? <laughs> there should be a change of plan mm. there. There should, there should be absolute, like, yes, I hear you. Let's test for this. Let's change this part of the protocol. Like, we can't expect to get this a different result if we just use the same protocol over and over and over again. And I, we have, we've had a few situations in which people had had 
for failed transfers. And, and sometimes that's all it is. It is just a failed transfer. And sometimes it's you need to go see someone else mm. who can look at this in a different way. Mm-hmm. Do you often encourage folks to get another opinion? Like if they are just not, they're not seeing the results that they want or having the success that they they deserve? Absolutely. Even if they're seeing me and we've gotten to a certain point in their timeline when we haven't seen a result, I, I will call in someone else. No one has all of the answers and no one doctor is going to be a perfect fit for every single patient out there. So I think it's important to advocate for yourself and know that you know, there's, there's no room for ego in medicine. So if you feel like a lot of your, the answers from your doctor are just like ego driven, that like you are allowed to seek answers from someone else. Mm. Uh, you are allowed to advocate for yourself. Like you employ these doctors. Mm-hmm. So I know that people get a, a little bit of a, a hang up about like, Oh, I don't know if I want to say that to my doctor. And like, you can, you should be able to say anything to your doctor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like you have hired them and you are allowed to ask these questions and um, and have a good understanding of you know what's going on in your body and in your fertility cycle and really learn to be your own advocate. In all of your years of practice, what makes your blood boil about infertility and RPL? How, how many am I allowed to choose? <laughs> Um, yeah, share the top three, the top three. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So I think number one would be insurance coverage. You know, some of these workups for recurrent pregnancy loss, especially, you know, the RPL, um, panel that I run most frequently through LabCorp, if someone's insurance doesn't cover that, that test, those tests are going to cost them around $1,200. And that's just crazy. I mean, I think we all know like how quickly the infertility workup and treatments add up, and it's just so frustrating. So insurance coverage is probably number one blood boiler right there. Um, number two would be IVF clinics that seem to be in it just for the money. <laughs> So when I see really cookie cutter protocols where it's like this person has endometriosis and is 37, this person is 24 and has PCOS, how the hell are they on the same protocol? This makes no sense to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And the doctors don't make time to answer patient questions. Maybe the patients don't even see the doctor except for their retrieval and transfers. Um, That's really frustrating. And that just in general there isn't a very holistic approach in Western medicine. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that people feel like it's an added expense to have to add in acupuncture or, you know, a naturopathic um, physician to the mix, you know? And I, I wish the two could harmonize more. I agree with you 100%. The some of the clinics in North America who have the best you know IVF success rates also have an acupuncturist, a nutritionist, a naturopath and a therapist wow. on their team. Wow. And and they're very few and far between. Unfortunately, but we know that this holistic approach really does set the best foundation. So that, you know, if you have to go through IVF, which some people do, uh, 
you are just so much more likely to have a positive outcome. Wow. I didn't even know that. That's pretty wild. Can you share which clinic that is? Um, I don't know the name of it off the top of my head. So there's a couple in Canada. Mm. There's one in Toronto and there's one in Vancouver area. And then there's one in the Boston area. Wow. That's like fertility full spectrum right there. Very much so. Yeah. And I I would say like, I am lucky here in Tucson that, you know, we've only got three REs, but they are all, they tolerate me so well. (laughs) That's great. That's great. (laughs) They do. They they put up with me. Um, They do allow patients to get acupuncture on site on their transfer days. Um, they're, they're very encouraging of the lifestyle changes. They just don't necessarily have the training in that to feel comfortable with, you know, actually advising patients on nutrition and stress management, um, all of, all of the little possible things that might be supportive for people. Well, how can people connect with you and possibly work with you? What, um, do you do virtual visits? Like what kind of things do you offer? Yeah. So in Arizona, where I am licensed, I can see people either in person or virtually, whatever their comfort level is. And of course, you know, acupuncture kind of has to be in person. So uh, we, we haven't figured out how to do that over Zoom quite yet. Not quite. That's a little yeah. um, even that's a little beyond even my comfort. <laughs> of stuff. Totally. And I'm, you know, a little out there. So, uh, and I do offer virtual consultation consultations for people out of state as well. I also have a group program because I, you know, so many people just have the same questions and are going through the same things. And even just knowing like, oh, I'm not alone in this can be so therapeutic. Um, so all of those options exist. Um, I hang out on Instagram. So if you send me a DM on Instagram, either me or my assistant will respond to those personally. And um, I have lots of info on Instagram as well. Thank you so much, Dr. Katie Rose. I mean, you've totally inspired me to take a deeper look at how much diet root beer I'm drinking. (laughs) I, I really do... I appreciate um, having you on today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for you know being open to the discussion of the, like what else can we look at in this world of RPL and supporting people going through this. I think it's just so important and people don't get an opportunity to talk about it enough, I don't think. Absolutely. All right, we will be in touch. Thank you so much. Thank you, Millie. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Me, Myself, and Millie. Follow us on Instagram at Me, Myself, Millie for more podcast updates. If you enjoyed the show, please like and subscribe and share on social media. A special thanks to my husband, Rowan Brooks, for technical support and Cal Reichenbach, who did all the music you heard in this episode. You can check him out at calzonemusic.com. Thanks, cutie bombs, and see you next week. <laughs>